So then this will be the part where I put in the, <laughs> the theme music. song, which the audience has just heard, uh, but we haven't because right. now we're recording. Right. Great. So hello. Good. Oh, hello. <laughs> the official start. <laughs> uh, this is Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary, and I'm Matt. I'm Hillary. And you just listened to our new theme song. Yeah. Uh, by the Spirit of Space. Donated to us by the Spirit Do of Space. Donated to us by the Spirit of Space. Okay. Fittingly enough. Um... We've been gone for a while, and now we're back. Yeah. And uh, um, we're this week is the bulk of our conversation will sir will uh, be about Senzeni Na Part Seven. Part Seven. And um, then I think maybe we'll record another episode on the final chapter, Shikata Ganai. Yeah. Maybe this week. Yeah. And put it out because uh, our listeners, primarily my mom, is champing <laughs> at the bit. <laughs> to finish up this book and move on to Green Mars. Yeah, I know. So, I know. And so much happens in Sinzeni Na that we have a lot to talk about. Uh, uh, and about I that. have heard from a, a couple of other loyal listeners, um, one mm -hmm. of whom is a relative of mine, uh, uh -huh. that, uh, yeah, they're, everybody's getting ready to move on to Green e Mars. Everybody. So. <laughs> everybody. Everybody's really ready for that. Um, don't forget to uh, follow us on Twitter, Twitter at Marooned on Mars Podcast. Uh-huh. Podcast, Marooned can, on Mars podcast. Marooned on Mars podcast. And then you can email us at the, the Gmail account, which is Marooned on Mars podcast at Gmail. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, I think that is podcast what it is. at Gmail. We got a, an email from someone who we don't know. Yeah. So actually, did someone, we talk about this? The last, we haven't talked about oh, this on the about podcast that? yet. Well, uh, it was really cool. It was really cool. Thank you, Brian person who Eric? is listening to us it was a guy we from new know. york city and we really and we'll read it next time but oh, i'm yeah. woefully unprepared right now yeah yeah uh yeah but you know um we should probably after we finish red mars after we do yeah. the next episode we'll probably do some kind of interstitial yeah, episode I think so. where which could be like you know listener mailbag listener mailbag uh, we'll read so... all two emails that we've received <laughs> we'll read several emails from matt's mom uh well, yeah most of which will be about red mars just one no just one okay. uh I would, i'm trying to encourage her subtly to send us another send us email. more emails mom uh but you know like if you have things that you want to raise or have us mention or um you know you are planning some kind of venture to mars that you would like us to promote <laughs> We haven't talked at all about Elon Musk on this oh, show no, or no. the fact that there is a new dust storm on Mars. Did you see that there is yeah. a real like, multi-day? Uh, yes, and they've lost uh, contact with, uh, not Curiosity, what's the other one? I don't know. It has a worse name than Curiosity. Opportunity. Um, opportunity. Lame. Oh, Lame. innovation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's called innovation. Um, uh, but they've lost contact with Opportunity because yeah. it's there's so much dust. Its solar panels are completely covered. Right. It just powered down. Yeah. And it like reboots every once in a while to see if it can get enough energy, and then it. It's so powers cool. Back down I again. love thinking about the rovers on Mars. Pretty clever. Yeah, that's pretty neat. It's amazing. It's um, amazing. 
The pic- but the pictures in that storm are incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't, uh, yeah, we haven't mentioned that. And then there's other Mars news a couple weeks ago. Oh, they found life. Oh, yeah? Was that? Did those... you not see that oh, they yeah, found yeah, life yeah, no, on I Mars? Did, I did see that, yeah. <laughs> well, um, evidence of the possibility, right? Evidence of, of the possibility life. of life on Mars, <laughs> which is my David Bowie impression. <laughs> it's really good. I know. Thank it's you. It's really good. So we're going to, um, maybe next in this interstitial episode, we'll talk about all those things uh-huh. as well as do listener ma- mailbag. And um, I want to do, you know what I want to do is find some original book reviews of when Red Mars came oh, that's out. that's a great and idea. find out what the critical reception was at the time. I mean, it did win the Nebula Award, but mm-hmm. I want to know what people thought about it back in 1993, 94 when it, was, when it was brand new. So maybe uh, I'll find the time to, to do some of that and do that. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. <clears throat> but right now, what we want to do is first, so last time that we spoke to you, we were talking about uh, the the Frank Chalmers episode, um, right. which is called Guns Under the Table. Guns Under the Table. And we definitely wanted to talk about ideology, but we never got around to talking about it, actually. Yeah. So I wanted to start with ideology from Frank's chapter's perspective and then get into the um, Senzenina, which is Nadia's chapter. Um, and specifically, Hillary, you wanted to talk about ideology. Well, I don't know if you remember I this. always want to talk about ideology, yes. although I don't know that I 100% remember what it was that I wanted to say. Um, but well, on uh, in the Guns Under the Table chapter on page 460, um, we get... Uh, uh, Frank has this moment of frustration. It's one of these times when he's like trying to like explain something to an audience that doesn't seem to understand him. Um, and he is having these kind of like, partly he's mad at, he's mad because he feels like people are too stupid to get what it is that they should be doing. But partly he also seems to be angry. And I think we did talk about this last time because he's actually himself changing in some ways and he he himself is no longer quite the political animal that he thought that he was um and i love this moment when um he's uh he's saying do you do you understand me he's having this kind of like uh, he's just started rambling as he's talking to this audience um and he says do you understand no someone bellowed (laughs) a flicker of his old anger boiled through his confusion i'm saying we have to make a new mars here i'm saying we're completely new beings that nothing is the same here nothing is the same um and then he he leaves the amphitheater um and he's asking uh Slusinski, who is his... He calls him Jeeves. Except his, his Jeeves. Yeah, he's like his like first assistant in as the Secretary of Mars, right? Right, And he right. calls him Jeeves even though he's uh, from New York and he has like a New York accent. Right, right. Uh, but he's just got a Jeeves-y quality about him. So anyway, he's talking to Slusinski. So he, say, he says, you know, he's still enraged. Um, How can people ask, act against their own obvious material interests, he demanded of Slusinski over his wrist pad. It's crazy. Marxists were materialists. How did they explain it? ideology sir but if the material world and our method of manipulating it determine everything else how can ideology happen where did they say it comes from and then slusinski goes on some of them defined ideology as an imaginary relationship to a real situation they acknowledged that imagination was a powerful force in human life but then they weren't materialists at all frank swore with disgust no wonder marxism is dead well, sir, actually a lot of people on Mars call themselves Marxists. <laughs> Shit, they might as well call themselves Zoroastrians or Jansenists or Hegelians. 
Marxists are Hegelians, sir. Shut up, Frank Snarled about that. <laughs> I love the, it's the uh, Marcy and Peppermint Patty uh, exchange. Yeah, totally. Where he, sir. <laughs> where Sosinski <laughs> calls Frank, who is Peppermint Patty in this situation, sir. That's awesome. Um, it's just this great dry <laughs> moment of levity uh, while Mars is falling apart. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like this is, I mean, partly like I just wanted to come back to this moment because this is like such a, to me, this is like such a Kim Stanley Robinson moment because it is both uh, – it is actually, I think, very funny, although you maybe actually have to be a Marxist to think that yeah, it's funny. Right. Um, it's a, although, it's a oh, bit inside. <laughs> Everybody okay. in the Frederick Jameson <laughs> seminar at UCSD when uh, KSR was there was, will, will be laughing hysterically. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. It, um, but, you know, like, although the, the dynamic between the two of them is just, like, funny yeah. – um, there is that kind of like joke about Hegelianism at the end, which yeah, I guess that is kind of inside inside Marxist baseball. Yeah. Um, uh, but also because like along the way, like this both is like a moment when we are learning something about Frank, something that frustrates him. We're seeing laid out something that we should be really interested in in these books, which is like um, these books are so deeply about. Uh, uh, material relations and material relations in a way that like I think is very very graspable I mean often when we say quickly material relations we mean like economic relations but on Mars it's very clear that material relations mean things like work and mm -hmm. contact with uh, the soil the dust uh, with like you know all, all of the kind of like you know the, the uh, materiality matters here in a way that is like uh, goes beyond what we think of when we quickly say, like, oh, material relations are economic relations, I right? Mean, especially because on Mars, material relations are more, much more directly the the conditions of your survival. Right, right. If and anything right. goes wrong, you're dead, and, and there's no way to get, you know... Right, the materiality has a kind of rawness, mm -hmm. and because we see here, like, very clearly that what are material relations? Material relations are how human beings transform the world, Right, our literal making of the world that we live in. And, you know, we on Earth live in a world that has, you know, that most of the time we perceive as having been made, we don't really know how, somehow, mm -hmm. long, long before us, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, when in fact, like, it's us who make the world and we're constantly in this process of making it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, you know, so there's in this moment, we both get like, um, we get this important question, which Frank is frustrated by, which is like, well, where do ideas come from? Like, wh why would we have wrong ideas about things when we're all in this position of just, like, trying to get by and survive, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that is a kind of, like, you know, that's the core question that, like, Marxists ask by thinking about ideology, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we get this kind of complicated thought that, like, there is nothing um, – about human beings that makes us automatically act in our own interests. And in fact, the question of what our interests are is like yeah. one of the most difficult questions. It's difficult personally, and we see this whole chapter is about how Frank has no idea what his own interests are. Right. Um, and it's deeply about like how Frank actually like misleads himself, not consciously, but constantly as to what his interests are. Um, so we get this kind of like I don't know. There's a way in which, like, if you wanted to know what ideology was, you just would have to, like, think about what goes on in this chapter and what's mm -hmm. going on in the book, which I like here because I feel like it gives you this sort of um, – it gives you the opportunity to think about something that's actually 
conceptually difficult and, you know, like academics or at least academics who are interested in Marxist theory, mm-hmm. like are interested in this as an academic question. But mm-hmm. it's also like a question about like how we live and how we make change. And mm-hmm. I like that it's all set up with this moment when Frank is like, but we, we're new, we're new, <laughs> you know, and new is supposed to be right. like, there is no ideology. We should just be free. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I like that. Uh, Cause it's, and he acknowledges it at the end of that passage that you just read that he was basically trying to be John Boone in these in this right, moment. Right. Where he's trying to do his version of John Boone, like, We're a new Mars. We became new when we got here. Don't you don't you know what I mean? And right. people are like, No, we don't. And basically they don't know what he means because he's not doing it in the charismatic way that John right. Boone does, because John Boone actually feels it and believes it. Right. And Frank is only able to sort of reproduce uh, what people already know that they want or like like acknowledge people's material desires and say, I'll get that for you. Just right, agree with right, what right. I want to do. Right. Whereas John Boone was able to create an aspirational reality or, or an, asp- an imagination of an aspirational you know, future right. that people could really latch on to that was ideological. Mm, right. And Frank, he's so dissociated from himself that it's like no wonder that he doesn't understand what ideology is because this chapter is really him sort of confronting his own unconscious and his own repressed as well. Right, Like right. he's going through all these dreams and these memories. And reading it a second time, you, I really got a sense that he's just fundamentally like almost like a psychotic. I mean, the way that he acts out and does things, that, that, that flashback to the moment where he was in the Florida bar watching John Boone land on, the, on Mars and then he leaves the bar and he like... Oh, he's in D.C., He's in D.C. Okay. Yeah. He beats up a homeless person then yeah. gives him $10, then tells him to get a job and then yells at him. And then people are like looking at him on the right, street like right. this guy's crazy. Right. And then he goes and does it again. I mean, it reminds, it also throws back to the opening chapter where he's like running around um, Nicosia uh, during their carnival celebration and throwing rocks and right. writing Jew on walls right. and just really like being this kind of um, god of misrule or something like that. Right. Um, which is interesting, too, because another thing that... Anyway, that... Another thing I noticed was that uh, in that first chapter, he is the first time we actually do see Coyote, but we yeah. don't know that it's Coyote, yeah. and he sees Frank doing all of this. And at the end of Guns Under the Table, Coy- he run- Coyote runs into him again, and he says, last time we met, you were bringing the town down this time it's my turn right and that's when the town right, the revolution right, starts right, right but anyway getting back to ideology the the phrase i i don't think i'd ever encountered the phrase ideology as an imaginary relationship to a real situation and that helps me out so much in terms of i mean i know what ideology is but just a little nice little jewel of a phrase right explaining what it is right a version of a phrase uh, in a famous essay by louis altusser i've never read <laughs> well no i uh, I mean, yes, probably. I mean, I haven't read it in a few years. Okay. I haven't yeah, read just that. Checking. I don't know if you, I don't, I don't, I don't keep reading that essay every year. No. Um, although some, I, yet I, I'm for some to. reason I do. Uh, I know why you do, you know, but I, well, and I wish I did because I really enjoy that essay, but I do it out of love. Anyway. But, but I think, I, I think an important point, I mean, if, you know, perhaps there are people who listen to this who are not interested in ideology or feel that that they should be, they should be. Um, but, but I think one of the points that is getting made here, um, when, uh, when Slusinski says they acknowledge the imagination was a powerful force in human life. I mean, you know, sometimes we think like, oh, so either people act rationally, like in accord with their own interests, or they act 
irrationally, and when we think about they act irrationally, we think that means like they're crazy or bad, right? right. You know, that is like one would they want to one would want to get rid of irrationality and substitute rationality instead. Um, but the thought in the kind of version of ideology that's getting circulated here, which is not a version that says like there are just bad ideas that people have that you can just like if you tell them the right thing, right, uh, you can wipe those ideas away, right? This mm -hmm. is like a more complicated idea. It's like you know. Why would why would um, uh, why would ideology be like so sticky? Why couldn't you just like get rid of it by like telling people the truth about things? And I think there it's because like the opposite of like acting in your own interest or being rational um, is not to be irrational, um, but to just be a person. Mm -hmm. That is, people are organized by and through. Um, you know, you could think of it as our imagination or you could think of it as our fantasies about things. Um, you know, that's like connected to what you were saying about John Boone. Part of what John Boone gives, the reason that he has this like charismatic quality is that he's able to produce these kind of like um, fantasy accounts of what it is to be on Mars. Mm -hmm. And there I don't mean fantasy really in a bad way. I mean, like he produces these accounts that are not exactly like what's the case on the ground. Um, but they have a relationship to it in a way that people can feel like, oh, I'm drawn to that. Mm -hmm. Yes, that gives me a kind of thing that I write. So he produces like certain kinds of strong imaginative possibilities. Right. And that's like a that's like a kind of positive way of thinking about, you know, ideology. ideology Although mostly yeah. we think of ideology as a way that like we get stuck in kind of like bad relations, right? We keep doing stuff that we don't want to do because we keep telling ourselves like, this is how I show that I'm a good person or, you know, like, but you can't not work right, or, right. you know, whatever. Like, Yeah, the typical way we think about ideology is that, that that's a bad thing that, oh, you're under in the thrall of that ideology, the right. communist ideology, the capitalist ideology. Right. I'm not in, under any right. ideology. Because I'm a I rational person. I'm a rational person. Yeah. Right. And to understand that rationality is not just the default um, mode of being a human being, but is actually, again, another kind of ideology that's imposed upon yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And that has been uh, trained and become the dominant, trained into us and become the dominant form of viewing ourselves, at least particularly in the West, at least particularly since whatever the 16th century or whatever you want to right, say. Right, right. Um, since the beginnings of capital. Since the beginnings of capital. Um, uh, that yeah, understanding those dynamics of it, and then also, um, as you were saying, uh, learning how to use those ideological tools to to speak to that imaginative view of yourself, and say, here are things that you imagine, the good parts of you that you imagine, right? Um, and we can enhance those in a way that is um, not the way that uh, is a that. That capital appeals to you, or that the dominant ideology appeals to you, right? I mean, I think that Something point, like that. yeah, I think that point that you were making about, like, um, you know, when we think about ideology, we think of it as something that other people are in the grip of. Just as like when we say, like, why don't people act in their best interests? Um, uh, we're always talking about somebody else, yeah. you know, and then the and then the idea is somehow that like, well, we who have better politics, like, we must act rationally and in our own interests, right? Um, which I just, I, that to me is like a really, I think that's a really like dangerous path. I think it's, first of all, it's a dangerous path because it oversells you and, and your, your friends. Uh, it assumes that like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm totally rational. Right. Um, and also because like, it assumes that what it is to like, um, you know, 
live under ideology or be a creature of ideology is something that like one can be above or only stupid people are subject to or only bad people are subject to right um so here you know like this is like a big scale sense of ideology it's not like when we talk about you know like um you know trumpism as an ideology Mm -hmm. that's like something small and positional and we can like think around it but when we think about you know complicated questions like why would anybody vote for donald trump like you know, without wanting to, like, you know, give sympathy to people who would do that. Like, you know, it seems to me important to not to approach that question by assuming that, like, you know, the reason that that happens is because in some ways those people are in the grip of something uh, that we who are able to think that that's an important question are not in the grip of. Well, I think there's, a like, maybe we should move on to the next chapter, but, like, the idea of I act in my own best interests, I am a rational human being, that can also coincide with I am acting in my own best interests by voting in a way that I think will benefit people who are not me as well, right? That who will benefit me and also members of my social class. And also I think I'm acting in the best interest. I'm acting altruistically, right? When I do my actions. Right, right. No one actually believes, can convince themselves into believing that um, – the things that I'm, well, maybe they can, stockbrokers, but the things that I'm doing are, yes, I want to punish people. I want to be, I am evil, right? right? right. I'm going to be an evil person. Um, and so even people who are voting for Trump are not thinking to themselves, I'm going to be an evil person. They're thinking I'm going to be a good person in this particular way. Right. 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 Um, right. Or just that, like, if we, if what we, if what we think we have to do is like produce a rational politics, I think we've misunderstood something about politics. Which is not to say that's not to endorse irrationality, but that is to say that, like, you know, a lot of what human beings are is not Not like you know a rational cause and effect motivation thing, and the idea of interests, like, it's not that that's not important. but that's a really limited way of thinking about what people are. And it's also a limited way of thinking about what it is that we need, mm-hmm. you know, which I actually think is a good segue <laughs> into the next chapter. Um, because the next chapter, which is so, um, I, I think I said this to you the other day, I cried several times yes. reading it, even though I've read this before. Um, but it's so much about like what happens when um, like, the world is actually like in the middle of such radical change that nobody knows what's happening. And you can't even like really make, you can't make even like a fake map of where your interests (laughs) would be really like your interest is mostly like in not dying in like not having too much destroyed. Like you can only have these sort of moments in which you think, well, what do we want to have happen in the future? Because you're just like so immersed in this moment of transformation. Yeah. I can't identify with that at all. In your life of radical transformation. Yes. Yes. So, um, uh, yes, it's a really good um, transition into part seven, Senzenina, uh, because this is what that whole chapter is about, is just trying to keep your head above water while everything is sort of falling, like, I guess literally, because there's so many uh, floods happening. Right, 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 right. Nice. Um, The... Senzeni Na, uh, as, as we recall, thinking back to when uh, the beginning of the John Boone chapter uh, was where he uh, first had the sabotage happen. Right. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a Japanese outpost. The, the, the part That's where those itself, Japanese who are practicing like 
like a radical Shintoism? I think are? so. Although I'm not sure about that because it was a new mohole. Right. Where the thing. Right. But right. right. As far as I can tell, this whole part doesn't have anything to do with that place. Right. It's more about the phrase, which means what have we done. Right. Which is a nice rhyming um, phrase to what is to be done. Right. Right. Um, Although it's from, I mean, it's from like a South African anti-apartheid protest song. What have we done? Oh, it is? Um, And, uh, or I I don't know whether it was like a, yeah, I mean, I think it's um, in... Zulu or mm. Hosha or anyway, a, a South African language. I thought it was for. I, well, wait. No, it's from a South African okay. protest song, and and that song is like, "What have we done?" Um, and it's basically saying like, "Why are you treating us this way? Right. You treat us as though we were evil, but but we're black. That's yeah. why you're treating us this yeah. way." So the point of the song is to sort of say like, you know here's this massive cruelty and injustice being perpetrated actually for no reason right. at all, but yeah. you pretend there's a reason. Yeah. Um, uh, which is like a really interesting thought. And then in this chapter, it feels like what have we done? It means, you know, like, holy shit, what, yeah. have, we done? what have we done? <laughs> but I thought it's kind of interesting to try to think about that. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't have an answer to like how it might echo with like that, with that song and mm-hmm. that content, but I think I have a feeling there's probably a way to think about that. I think for both of those, there's good resonances there, like in terms of like, yeah, mm-hmm. what have we done to deserve this? Why are we doing, you know, why is this happening? And then also, what have we done uh, as a response to what is to be done? Right. Like we have then done something and then, oh crap, what have we done? Because as we flash forward to the sort of last lines of that chapter, which we'll get to, of this chapter, which we'll get to, um, it's clear that the revolution that has been begun at the end of uh, part six um, uh, in Nicosia and all over the the world has resulted in things that were absolutely not planned and did not right. go the way that the revolutionists hoped and believed that they right. would, I'm right. sure. Right. I mean, and part of the movement of the chapter, we go, I mean, so the, the italicized section at the beginning is Arcadi and it is... Um, really tragic. horribly enough yeah. the last we see of Arcadi even though you're you know you do kind of you know you hold out hope till Nadia actually finds yeah. his body that he might not right, be he dead might have survived. Um, even though that would be very much not in the spirit of these books right. <laughs> but uh, but so you you know you have the beginning with Arcadi and he has this moment where he thinks about um, George Orwell and homage to Catalonia talking about mm. the anarchists in Barcelona and the idea of like a new social contract that's born in this moment of uncertainty of upheaval. Um, and yeah, it's this like great kind of revolutionary vision and there the vision is like, um, so we don't know what will happen in a re- the revolution is this moment in which we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this moment of unknowableness, but what's going to come out is going to be new. And this right. is very Ar- this is very Arcadi, yeah. and then it echoes with that moment that Frank tries to take up from John in the previous yeah. chapter. We are new. We're new. Um, this is like the instantiation of the new, and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and then the the movement of the chapter, because then we go to Nadia, and for Nadia, who feels that she is you know, not political or, mm-hmm. and certainly not a revolutionary. The first part of the chapter is all about her being like, I'm going to keep trying. She's trying to fix things. Yeah. It's Nadia, the engineer. She's right. going to fix everything. She's right. going to fix everything. Um, uh, but the movement there is also toward her. I 
you know, she becomes a, I mean, she a radicalization she, and she becomes, you know, the last revolutionary act. Yeah. It's Nadia who makes it happen. Right. Yeah. So there, I mean, so this is to hook that into our discussion about ideology because, you know, I think at the beginning of the chapter, Nadia feels something that we can describe as all of these people are occupying these ideological positions. She just wants to be the material. She wants to be the person who's like taking care of the material side of things. She just wants to fix things. She doesn't want all of this stuff that she has built with her Mm -hmm. sweat and her intelligence to be broken. She doesn't want everything to fall apart. Um, So she, in that way, sees herself as like outside it. But it's just, it is like through the, it's through what happens. It's right. through the unknowability yeah. and the chaos and all the unintended consequences that by the end, like, she, you know, becomes one of the revolutionaries. And there it's not a matter of ideology. It's a matter of, like, having become something new. Well, yeah, and I want to... It's a matter of action, I guess. Yeah, and and I guess just jumping back to the imaginary mm. relationship to a real situation, there's... Uh, there's, you know, there's a reciprocity between the imagination and the real that um, results in whatever your the ideology you're operating under is, or how ideology affects you, or how you view yourself as an ideological subject. And th- the real situation can only change so much before your imaginary relationship to it has to change. Right. Right. I think for me and for a lot of people, the election of Donald Trump was a change in the real situation that my imaginary relationship to it had you know completely shattered right right right. um that you know many people woke up the next day not knowing what planet they were on right and that's really the feeling that i had right right Right. um and so uh yeah and that's what happens to nadia here we get the death of arkady who with whom she was in love uh and we get the destruction of so much stuff that she built needlessly right right just completely going back to the original meaning of senzenina um totally needlessly like we did not have to blow all this stuff up right Uh, right there there had to have been other solutions to this but they are doing it simply because they can and uh to terrorize the population of mars right right well i mean and i think that like i think there's a kind of double movement because like you know like the change in like the change in material conditions precedes the possibility of new ideas, yeah. right? Um, but Nadia, we and one of the interesting things I think in the chapter is that, like, as Nadia is like, um, you know, basically desperately trying to like keep the built world mm-hmm. of Mars built, um, and just to slow down, because part of you know part of what's happening is like since this fighting is going on on a planet that is not Earth, like there are even more unintended consequences than there are in wars or uprisings on Earth, because mm-hmm. like you know they're like um, uh, they're using bombs, they're destroying things, and they're not they don't have a good idea of what's happening in these very different environmental conditions, right? So we get all this like bursting forth of yeah. like water, um, these crazy like floods. Um, so Nadia goes from this kind of like attempt to like shore up what's already there or, you know, like rebuild the towns to having this realization because she's like using these robot. I mean, every, yeah. they build everything through robots. And we get here, like, I think the clearest account of how that works. Um, 
at some point she realizes that like she's never actually like fully you know she's never made the fullest use she could have made of this technological possibility right. which is like that she can be building something almost on the other side of the planet working yeah. remotely um and then it's after that you know it's after like another thing happens i mean it's after she finds arcadi right um that then, like, she turns instead to a revolutionary act rather than the act of building. But, but you know, like, there's a new piece of knowledge comes mm-hmm. out of it, right? A new idea about, right. like, how you make a world is there in the middle of the chapter, right? Right, right. That they actually had the means to do this mm-hmm. there all along. And she's, like, shocked when she meets people and she's, you know, when they go to these, like, little embattled towns and nobody's doing anything. Right, they don't even know... <laughs> They don't even know what materials they possess. Right. They don't know how the machines actually work. There aren't any engineers there, which is kind of like a uh, techno-utopianist. <laughs> oh, if we just had enough engineers, because right, we exactly. know engineers are the most pro- uh, progressive, uh, well-thinking, right. well uh, right-thinking right political scientists that we have. Um, so uh, one of the things – so uh, maybe like – yeah, Arkady dies by the end of the um, italicized section, although it is still sort of left ambiguous. This amazing – there's two sort of amazing um, images of destruction that happen in this italicized section. One is that some fringe um, revolutionary group has taken an asteroid called Nemesis and aimed it at Earth. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, amazing kind of uh, image of what space warfare, what real interplanetary space warfare might mean is harnessing um, asteroids and other right, celestial right. bodies and throwing them at planets. Um, but the Earth sort of defenses blow up the the asteroid nemesis. Arkady is not um, involved in that. He has a conversation with Phyllis, who is kind of urging him to... Um, uh, 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 retreat or surrender and um, he is kind of stalking around this uh, this town called Carr and he's extremely you know he's really into it he's really happy about the revolution and he's super thrilled and then it finds out they find out that oxygen levels within the tent are uh, rising so precipitously yeah it's really I mean to just imagine that and and this goes speaks to something that Frank was warning everybody about in the previous chapter as well that you are in a really precarious situation right. in these tents because all they have to do is pop them and uh, there's another way to do it which is evidently to uh, fill it with tent with oxygen and simply light a match um, right. And everything just goes up into flames right it burns all the people and later later Nadia sees them as um, uh, they're the marks of the corpses on the ground. It makes her think of Hiroshima yeah. after the bomb, even though, yeah, exactly. It was done completely simply with just, fire and an excess of oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so like, and, and this is another sort of like, um, it's another way in which like, you know, the newness of Mars is now being subject to something that's very old, which mm. is political violence yeah. and political violence from like, in this case, a sort of multi-state slash multinational um, yeah. desire to make sure that like Mars stays under their control. It's an interesting thing in this chapter. I was just thinking that we have like it opens with that. I, I do think the like for every one of the kind of images of destruction in the chapter, um, like it does really re- we are really reminded uh, that we're like we're thinking about like incredible destruction like it doesn't let you take pleasure in the violence um 
Although at the same time, like the chapter has these like amazing images of like extraordinary, um, yeah, you know, extraordinary destructive power. The central piece being when they um, cut the elevator yeah. cable. So cool. Um, uh, that is just like yeah. I mean, that's like indelible and crazy. It's yeah. like not only it's not only that like um, they've like cut the. Um, the tether they've cut the tether and they've cut you know um phyllis <laughs> off um but it's also that then the tether like wraps itself around the entire planet twice yeah. two and a half times almost, or something like that almost two times almost two times just like what an insane insane yeah. image well, and that the way that it um i you know you can really this is like another great mm. sort of you can really visualize both arcadi's arm catching on fire oh, god and then uh, that tether and Phobos when they blow yeah. up Phobos or turn it into a rocket. Um, but the tether um, or the umbilical cord or whatever it is, the elevator, the space elevator, you can imagine it, you know, dropping in 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 its mm. kind of case in uh, Sheffield and then just starting to like fall. And it, of course, it takes three days to fall or something like that or a right. day or right. whatever. And as it falls, it acceler it's accelerating, I think, right. too. So that by the time it's even, before it's even hitting the ground, it's already sort of exploding into flames. Right. And in some places, it's like sinking into the ground. And in some places, it's making like a wall. It, yeah. And Saks is like... We'll um, have a Great Wall of China. And somebody else says the Great Wall of China. And Saks is like, it's making it's making an equator. Just like when I was a child, I always thought there was a black band around the planet. Everybody's like, yeah, shut up, shut Sachs. Up, Sachs. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's an amazing image, and yet also, like, when we see that happen, you know, like, um, you know, this revolutionary act, which if you've been hoping that, you know, like, Mars is going to try to free itself from the grip of the transnationals, like, this is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, Phyllis, the worst person mm -hmm. in, in the first 100, is there, this is, like, the sign, you know, it is the tether, right? Yeah. It's the sign of, like, Mars Mars being enthralled to Earth and being exploited by Earth. Um, and, you know, we get to see, you know, we're at, like, wherever the, like, revolutionaries are yeah. who have figured out how to bring it down. And then Anne and Simon are there, and their son is... Um, they don't know where oh, Peter he is. is up there. But Peter is either up there or maybe on the elevator yeah. or maybe he's back down on Mars. They don't right. know. Right. And we, you know, and we just see them like, and then suddenly like you have to think like, oh, so the people who are, there are people dying yeah. and the people dying are real people. Yeah. Right. You have to move on from that. Well, the, it's on 502, 503 and then the whole crowd. And where are they? Margaritifer, Margaritifer Station. Um, makes me thirsty some, for some reason. Um, <laughs> Margaritifer Station. And Just wasting away in Margaritiferville. <laughs> wasting away in Margaritiferville <laughs> Station. Um, and then there's, you know, they're singing. We're off to see oh, the wizard. They're all high. The they're, winter, all they're all high. <laughs> um, it's a holiday, haven't you heard? You know, it's Independence Day, 14 the 14th. Watch, watch this. And, um, and then... You know, immediately as soon as it starts happening and they see the reaction of the first hundred, they it kind of sobers, sobers them up a little bit. It harshes their mellow. Um, uh, and then they explain how they broke the cable or they, they broke away from the cable. But I do like also the image of... Um, what did it, uh, 
they howled again and some of them began a ragged countdown starting at 100. Some of them were inhaling helium as well as nitrous oxide. And, <laughs> and me stood below the big screen singing, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Um, zero, a gap appeared between the asteroid and the cable. Clark disappeared from the screen mm-hmm. instantly. The cable gossamer among the stars dropped out of view almost as fast. And, and Clark is just, at this point, hurling away from Mars like at the speed of a bullet. Um, and they later explain that it's going to take like five years for, for them to wrangle Mars and, or Clark, Clark and get yeah. it back around because it's, they're going to have to use Jupiter as a slingshot or something like that. Um, it's so cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, and and the, I mean, just like, I don't know. I think something that's really interesting about this chapter, I realize that I feel like I keep trying to figure out the right way to say this and haven't quite figured it out, but like that it's not what's happening in the course of the chapter. I mean, we think like what's a what's a revolution? Mm-hmm. A revolution is like a political reconfiguration yeah. that then reconfigures like the way in which people live. Um, and here, because what's happening in the revolution is also like part of the you know physical geological reconfiguration of the planet itself. Right. Like, I think that that tells us something that we should actually think about more in the context of our own world, right? Which yeah. is that, like, changes aren't just changes in how people live, but in entire ecosystems, mm-hmm. in environments, in all all the ways in which we're, like, tied to each other and to mm-hmm. the world. But here, like, Mars, you know, like, um, Nadia thinks several times, like, I wonder if Sax is happy about this. Right. And, of course, Sax is not happy because it's, like, not having in a controlled way yeah, that he can study. Yeah, it's too chaotic. It's too many things. But all of a sudden, I mean, there's that moment where... Uh, they're flying in their in their little light 16D. aircraft, and they land, um, and they're by a lake that looks like a sea. Yeah, you know, all of a sudden there's water on the surface of Mars. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden there's all of this like heat released. The yeah. like relationship to the um, you know the moons is completely transformed. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, around the middle of the planet, there is this, like, strange, like, which breaks up, uh, you know, breaks up the land all around it. I mean, so, like, the world's being remade. Yeah. And, it, and is this, like, you know, when Sachs is doing it, it's terraforming, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But is this is this terraforming? Mm-hmm. You know, like um, what? Well, I mean, it speaks to to the we talked last week or last time about the crowd understanding instinctively the tactics of strike and riot, right? Right. And this definitely speaks to riot, right? Just right. Property destruction, right? Uh, you know, just destroying things, um, and. You know, having a political um, result of that, or or a, a result a result of that destruction somewhere being down the road, where the politics needs to be significantly reconfigured, right, right, as well. I mean, it makes me think of the um, pipeline protests, um, Keystone XL, and uh, the Standing Rock from right. a couple of years ago. Um, in terms of thinking not only about a political, like a revolution needing to not only be political in the way people relate to each other but especially today people the way people relate to the earth itself right right because of how because of the assault of capitalism on uh on the ecosystem it is you know it's it's beyond mere politics or beyond 
lowercase i ideology, right? Right, and because like we, you know, we think like, oh, there's this realm of like human stuff. So you know, when you think of like, I, I don't know, like, I, whatever, imagine like revolutionary violence or political violence taking place some somewhere. You know, you think of buildings being destroyed right. or whatever. Um, but of course, and you know, like obviously, like Hiroshima is a perfect example of this. Like you're also looking at like substantive environmental reconfiguration that happens too. And I think the point, or I think the thing that this chapter lets you realize is that those things are not separate. Yeah. Right. There's there's not like the world of humans and the natural world. Yeah. Right. But like actually, all of this stuff is deeply tied together. Just like, you know, at one and the same time in this chapter, like the way in which like Nadia is beginning to have this a picture and not just a picture but like a practice of like how you do extraordinarily mm -hmm. large scale building like at the same time as that like we're seeing like this extraordinary like transformation of the environment of mars mm -hmm. um and we're seeing this kind of like back and forth between the idea that like oh is this under control and like part of somebody's plan you right. know that image of nadia like with the waldos like with the robots yeah that she's controlling on the other side of the planet is is a fantasy of like total control, yeah. right? And knowing what you're doing, um, and like you know intent and an intentional command over a world, right? And yet, like the elevator cable falling is like you know unintended consequences writ just about as large as they could be writ, right? You know, like uh, the lakes appearing, right? The ruptures of the aquifers, like you know, none of this is intended although it is all consequence mm -hmm. and all of that all of that is tied together right there's not you know there's not a sort of like oh there's this like we can bring this all back under control that mm -hmm. does not seem to be the story here right. and at the same time you know and we get like you know the emergence of new possibilities and extraordinary destruction at the same time because like the chapter where the elevator cable falls down is the chapter that ends with Nadia finding Arkady's body uh -huh. and basically like i think I'm sure that this is debatable, but I think, like, you know, if there's one, like, uh, if there's a relationship in the book that, in in the novels, in at least in this one, that, like, you know, you just, like, can feel good about, it's yeah. kind of the Nadia Arcadi relationship, yeah. you know, and that it ends in this, like, horrible moment yeah. of her, like, scanning his one remaining hand to yeah. see, oh, yeah, that's Arcadi. Yeah. Except they also hadn't really been together for a period of years. I mean, like, right. I still feel good about their relationship. They're still obviously... <laughs> it's probably why it's a good relationship. So obviously the good relationship, but they still haven't... Yeah, they've been, like, apart for a while, and, and his radicalization really sort of drew her, uh, drove her away right. in a certain right. way. Um, uh, I didn't put a lot of, like, note, notes into this chapter because I was reading it so fast. It's such an exciting chapter oh to read. God, You're yes, just dying is. to get to the next thing that I didn't want to stop and take notes or put little flags in there. So I, I really only have like something about all the, re all the revolutions happening at one, right after she finds the, um, uh, Arcadi's wrist and, and, and scans right. it. Right. Um, and they talk about, uh, you know, telling Sachs, this isn't the American Revolution or the French or the Russian or the English. It's all the revolutions at once everywhere. It's a whole world in revolt with a land area equal to Earth's and only a few thousand people are trying to stop it. Um, uh, that's for, I don't know why I have that marked, but. Um, well, it's an, inter it's an interesting contrast to what we learn is going on on Earth, which is that like. Um, right. 
we're seeing because because like in the last uh, uh, we we've had hints that this is going on through like um, whatever Earth's increasing population problems through global warming. Um, through like the increasing and radical disparities between rich and poor on earth um, uh, through the fostering of you know ethnic and racial hatred right earth has become an extremely volatile place you know like in some ways like that you know the transnats and the European nations and Unoma want to hang on to European and American and Unoma want to hang on to Mars because it's like their last, you know, this is like yeah. the one dream that they have yeah. for getting out of the situation they're in. But in this chapter, we learn that the transnationals have essentially allied themselves with the group of seven nations because that's still where the biggest militaries are. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing retrenchment. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing like the attempt on the part of the global south to rise up. Um, but, you know, the the sense the sense is that the guns or the majority of the guns are all on one side right. um and capital is on is now clearly just on one side of that yeah. um on the european american side um so like we have this kind of yeah we're we're like cast back to to earth you know we have this vision of what's happening on mars um and earth is both like more familiar right mm-hmm. you know i mean this sounds like if we were going to extrapolate like what we thought was going to happen right. on earth I mean, this still basically sounds like what we would think is going to happen on earth yeah, right it is what's happening on earth it is what's happening on earth and so then on the other side of that again we have this sort of question how or in what way will mars be new right you know like we see this like radical destruction. We see all of these unintended, you know, all of these things happening that no one has intended to happen. Um, I mean, I kind of think that the moment when Nadia decides when she puts in, she takes Arkady's transmitter and, and, you know, types in the name of Mars and sends Phobos off to blow up. Um, you know, I think, I think they're like, it, you know, like, that that moment is like you know we're on the side of the revolution oh yeah here, right for sure. despite the fact that it's not all good mm-hmm. and that it's painful and horrible i wanted mm-hmm. to read that there i just think there's a really amazing moment right before she um right before she uh types the code into the transmitter on 522 mm. um i just yeah i think this is like such a crazy beautiful image uh so she's remembering that arkady had um uh given her the transmitter and she's having this thought that people increasingly have that person could have lived a thousand years so which is so crazy um she thought of arkady and of a thousand years um and hissed. They had quarreled so in recent years mostly about politics. Your plans are all anachronism, Nadia had said. You don't understand the world. Ha, he had laughed, offended. This world I understand. With an expression as dark as any she had ever seen from him. And she remembered when he had given her the transmitter how he had cried for John, how crazy he had been with rage and grief, just in case he had said to her refusals pleading just in case. And now it had happened. And part of what's happened is that, like, they've all come to realize that, like, um, uh, the transnets, Unoma, 
are coming after the first 100 and they're actually deliberately being targeted because they're seen as the powerful people. Mm -hmm. um, now it had happened, she couldn't believe it. Um, she took the box from her walker's thigh pocket and turned it over in her hand. Phobos shot over the western horizon like a gray potato, which is a hilarious mm -hmm. image. The sun had just set and the alpine glow was so strong that it looked like she was standing in her own blood as if she were a creature as small as a cell standing on the corroded wall of her heart <laughs> while around her swept the winds of her own dusty plasma. Rockets were landing at the spaceport north of the city. The dusk mirrors gleamed in the western sky like a cluster of evening stars, a busy sky. UN ships would soon be, soon be descending, um, and she types Mangala. Into the, uh, into the transmitter, it was like using a TV remote. <sighs> um, a bright light flared on the leading edge of the little gray disc. The two faint lights went out. The bright light flared even brighter. Could she really perceive the deceleration? Probably not, but it was there. Phobos was on its way down. But that image of her, I mean, like, what a crazy image. Like, first of all, it's like, you know, calling out to, like, you know, science fiction stories when somebody gets, like, shrunk down and is able to go, like, through their own oh, like, yeah. fantastic voyage or whatever. <laughs> um, but she, it looks like she's standing in her own blood. And yeah. when you read that, it's like, well okay, like, yeah, this has been a chapter full of blood. Yeah. She's the person who's, like, registering the mm -hmm. pain of people dying. But then it turns into her standing inside her own blood means she's one of the living things, the cells inside mm -hmm. of her, right? Um, standing on the corroded wall of her heart, which is just, like, you know, <laughs> a heartbreaking um, moment. Well, around her swept the winds of her own dusty plasma. I mean, so that, like, then, like, Mars is her body. She yeah. is Mars. She's inside herself, like, you know, but that... dusty um, is desiccated. Dusty it's, and yeah. desiccated, corroded, right? You know, like, giving up, but yeah. also, like, the blood here is, you know, if, if she's a cell inside her own blood, like, that's livingness. That's right. not death. That's not the blood that spilled. Anyway, I just think that's, like, this, yeah. like, beautiful moment with the person who we first see the beauty of Mars. Right. With, yeah, right, right. right. From the earlier chapter when right. she was, yeah, she did a little dance on the North Pole Yeah, of Mars, right, exactly. You know? And here she is, like, not on the planet, but inside herself. Yeah. But doing, you know, like, doing the thing that's going to, like, um, well, at least it gives them, like, cover to, like, get out of there, right? Yeah, but it's also very, tra I mean, like, she, Arcadi gave her the transmitter after the death of John Boone in the um, italicized portion before the Frank chapter. Right, and right. she was like, no, refu like refusing it. Um, and, but it's also this tragic moment where, because Phobos was this little jewel of a place right. that Arcadi had hall made. Of mirrors. His hall of mirrors yeah. and his you know, uh, tiles and colors. And it was just really like his utopia. Um, and he had always planned on the possibility that he would have to destroy it in the name of the revolution, right. like in the name of um, actually creating the break. Right. So is this kind of predestined tragic uh, <clears throat> moment that happens? And of course, you know, I mean, it represents Arcadi for her at, right. on a very on a very uh, deep level. Right. Um, but I think it also, you know, like it's interesting because it's like. Um, you know, it is the, you know, the thinking about her heart and her blood there yeah. is all about Arcadi, but it is also about, like, how much she is of this planet, yeah. right? And this is, like, not only her, like, doing the thing Arcadi asked her to do if it was necessary, um, it is also kind of, like, changing her own relationship yeah. to the planet, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. she doesn't let anyone know that it's her yeah. who brought Phobos down. Like, they assume that, like, it was, like, pre-programmed that that mm -hmm. would happen or something like that, right? Um, but yeah, I think that's a really like, um, I think that kind of, uh, 
I mean, this is sort of like a side note, but I think that the um, something that we don't talk about when we're thinking about utopia is how much um, utopias often are about indexing, like what we'll lose in mm. order to live differently. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, they're not like the utopia is not like the perfect place or the eternal place or the, you know, the self-enclosed place. Mm-hmm. Um it can also be something that like points us toward the thing that is different, right? But like part of what we think about when we think about like how does a utopia work is like what won't we have? What do we have now that we won't have right. in in that space, mm-hmm. you know? And that that uh, I feel like that's kind of here too, right? Like you know, Arcadi's little dream palace is not that's not a new world. Right. That's like you know, it's an image of something. Yeah, um, and it's a powerful image yeah. but it's not a new world you yeah. know i mean and then you know and also it's a it's a satellite not the planet yeah but i mean it, it's also uh as much as the the planets i mean it's fun as a kid you know you start learning about the uh, solar system and you learn the planets and you ner- learn the names of moons of the planets and other pl- you have you know earth has a moon but all the other planets have moons too and to have a to destroy a moon. Yeah. It's like that Mr. Show sketch. I don't know if you ever saw Mr. Show. But like the, there's a Mr. Show sketch where like NASA comes out with an exciting new announcement. We're going to blow up the moon. And everyone cheers and then they blow up the moon. And then they're like, why did you do that? And they're like, but because we blew it up. Isn't that cool? Right? Like, but uh, yeah, to blow up a moon. Right. Now NASA embarks on its most daring and exciting project yet. Thank you very much. We have an announcement to make uh, on July 4th of this year. America will blow up the moon. We have the technology. The time is now. Science can wait no longer. Children are our future. America can, should, must, and will blow up the moon. Yes, and we'll be doing it during a full moon, so we make sure we get it all. Right. Well, and there's this whole thing in the chapter, right, about the, like, the Roche equation or whatever yeah. it's called, which is, like, about, like, the pull between a smaller, uh, a larger planetary body's tidal pull yeah. versus the, like, gravitational organization of a smaller yeah. uh, body. Um, so there is this whole sort of, like, thing going around through here about, like, the si- the size of these various things, how they're held in relation to each other and yeah. their gravitational fields, yeah. right? Um the yeah. stuff that isn't going to change, like whatever the revolution right. does, right? Yeah, the Gra- Roche, yeah, gravity. We, it's like we brought the Roche limit to it, or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, you know, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's just it's just such a good chapter. It's and so then cool. like Coyote shows up and uh, Coyote shows up and saves the day. It's like you guys need to get out of the city this way, and then Michelle. Michelle <laughs> to the rescue, the Frenchman to the rescue. And doesn't Nadia look at him and think, God, he looks old. Oh, yeah. Well, that's another thing that happens throughout this chapter. Maybe not throughout this chapter, but especially when we get to Michelle and when they're all kind of resting, Frank is standing over Maya and he says to Nadia, she looks like a little girl. And Nadia's like, I don't think, you know, Nadia thinks to herself, she looks really old. Yeah, right, exactly. And they're all 80 years old. <laughs> they're um, 80 years old. But they're, but they're, they're still aging, but they're going to live forever. It's like, again, unintended consequences. Like, hey, do you want to live forever? Yes. Okay, cool. You're still going to look like shit. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's also like that interesting, like, you know, they're all of... I mean, this is like a, like a classic, like, war or is violence worth it question is like, oh, well, is there a way to think about what the wor- the worth of a single human life is? You know, so, like, you 
like there's a way of imagining that like you would ask questions about like whether an act of revolutionary violence is is you could make a calculus about whether it's worth it or not based right. on some thinking about the worth of a human life um and i think every time they think like a person who could have lived a right. thousand years at, so is is it is a person more important because they could live a thousand right. years yeah. you know like does it does the person's lifespan i i feel like that's a really interesting kind of question right like is it more of a loss if a person would have lived longer yeah it doesn't seem like you know that idea because that has this kind of like fantasy of this like ongoing potency you know yeah. like that's like nadia like wielding like you know remote robots all over it the is. planet it, right it, i was gonna say some basically <clears throat> that where um because it, it, it reminds me too of like every time frank uh i can't I, I don't mean to keep going back to frank but when he encounters new people or nadia in this chapter they encounter a new group of people and or they do it actually at one point in this chapter. Are you guys Bogdanovists? Do you, right, are you with right. Arkady? And they're like, who? You know this this um, you know primal narcissism of the first one hundred. Yeah, right, right, right. Where it's like, don't you know who I am? I'm one of the first hundred. Right. And there's a whole and of course by now they're eighty years old. They've been on Mars for twenty five years or whatever. Um, there's a whole generation of people back on Earth who've never heard of these people. They're just old people to them. Right. Life on Earth is really, really miserable, way, way worse than when they all left. So the idea that uh, the people of Earth would still be obsessed with these Mar these Martians, especially when there's more and more Martians every day, yeah. is kind of, uh, it speaks to that kind of sense of like, well, is it good to live for a thousand years? You guys have already seemed to have outlived your usefulness or your right. connection to a vast majority of or a vast number of people right. on Earth so that your own significance and experience is really difficult to trans translate and transmit to uh, to these people um, in in a sense of creating a community of shared values with an ongoingness that um, would that would create the necessity or the desire to not have a revolution or to maintain peace or to not simply pit people against each other. Right. Right. right Won't right. living for a thousand years be sort of incredibly catastrophic? That's something that I think happens in Green Mars too, yeah. where the population uh, limitations and and sort of agreements start uh, happening more if you know if we give everybody the treatment then we're gonna you know i think it says in this book go malthusian right, right very quickly right, right um so yeah anyway that was a rambling uh, no 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 because no, i think that the uh um Oh my god! I just lost what I was going to say. Sorry. Something about living for a thousand years. A thousand years. Well, being connected oh, to the yeah. They, I mean, there's a way in which, like, the first one hundred. You know, so I mean, they. I think we're. I was thinking in this chapter because they're getting whittled down. So so many of them yeah. die in this chapter. Yeah. You know. Um, well, that, that's interesting too. Not to interrupt, but well, I just did. But <laughs> the transnationals in Unoma clearly see the first hundred as at least having some avatar atavistic right. kind of uh charismatic quality that they need to because they represent a possibility that is not what the transnationals right. want to be right. a possibility that was that's exactly what i was okay. going to say that that like it's interesting that like the transnationals see them uh, as like oh this is you know like if you cut off 
you got to cut off the head of the snake and the rest of the snake will die or whatever. Is that a thing that people say? Well, the hydra you can't cut off. That's the thing is, the thing is, it is well, a hydra. Yeah, the but first the tra- hundred are a hydra. But the, the transnationals think it's a snake. Anyway, right. whatever. <laughs> if they, uh, they're confused. They're only seeing the one part of it. Yeah. But, the, but, you know, the transnationals think something about the first 100 that a little bit the first 100 kind of think about themselves too, right? Yeah. That like, oh, these are the important people, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the other side of that is like we keep seeing here like how there's a way in which like at this point like it's not like their their bond is not that they are friends right it's not that they work together or that they agree politically or that they agree with each other but they have this like bond this commonality among them and it's not even really just i think the experience is it's so clear that the experience has meant such radically different things to them um and yet you know like i think that there's something that is like really like um I don't know. I think it's interesting, and I think it's really important in the book to think they have a they have a tie between them. They have a kind of commonality, and it's hard, really, actually, in some ways, to name or to understand it. But that will not go away. Here's here's what I just wrote down while I while you were while you were saying this, which is that the first hundred represent not a unity of possibility or utopia. But the actual diversity of utopia and and possibility. That every single one of those first hundred went to Mars with a different possibility, a different set of um, possibilities, expectations, a different idea of what Mars could be. And they congealed around certain ideas and stuff. But the more of of that diversity of possibility you can eliminate, the more you can narrow it down to the one that the transnationals, the capitalists, the powers that be um, want to want to promote as natural, eternal, right. um, rational, you know, um, so that the more of the first hundred they can kill and eliminate, the better for them. I was going to say, you know, the, the transnationals um, believe, see the first hundred sort of the way that the first hundred see themselves, but also not. Primarily because mm. the transnationals still exist on Earth in the media sphere that is, that exists on Earth, mm. that Mars is still very dependent upon, and that the corporations control. Right? We get these. Um, uh, we were talking before we started about the way that the first hundreds experience of their own revolution is so heavily mediated through the television uh, transmissions from Earth. Right, right. That Mars itself doesn't really have its own broadcast networks, uh, its own news, uh, anything like that. They're getting TV transmissions from Earth, and the TV transmissions from Earth are all painting the first hundred as the ringleaders of this. And as terrorists. As terrorists of this small revolution, of the small uprising that's not even doesn't even rise to the level of revolution. Right. Uh, and because the information on Earth is so controlled by these corporate interests, um, the people of Earth don't really understand the magnitude of what is going on on Mars. And so it's very important for the transnationals to eliminate the first hundred because they can actually give an alternate account of what's gone on. And they still exist. I mean, this is how I would say, you know, um, Capitalism and capitalists really do understand the power of symbols and symbolism um, in terms of of ideology and making it work Um, uh, because uh, in a way that the first hundred themselves 
maybe instinctively do, but never, you know, it's really hard for them as individual people, except for maybe John Boone and Arcadi, right. to really understand the magnitude of what they stand for for other people. Right, right. Um, Frank certainly doesn't understand it, and Nadia has never really thought about it, and Maya is sort of too wrapped up in her own psychodrama that John and Frank have, like, wrapped her in right, um, right. To, to really get it transnationals get this because they have constructed it themselves they right. are they have built the media figures that the first hundred are and now it is up to them to dismantle them right because the elementary ideological effect under capital is that one is an individual yeah. right and that therefore like the way in which like change happens is by individuals doing yeah. things um right. and and you know that is, and just to like you know make a sort of um whatever, like more meta level comment, there's, this is one of the things I think is interesting in these books that definitely as we move into the next two, you know, we see more and more that there's a kind of pull in them as there's a always, I think, a pull in science fiction between, um, you know, ha keeping you, the reader, attached um, via characters, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the kind of like... Um, impersonality mm -hmm. that is so important to science fiction and by impersonality i don't mean like you know oh it's hyper rational and hard science or whatever i mean like science fiction is not about individuals right um but it it i mean it can be about individuals but it also unlike you know whatever realist novels it doesn't have to be it can be and is at its best like about worlds mm -hmm. um about um people in various kinds of aggregates yeah. you know um, and I think the idea of, like, the main character in these books is the first 100. Right. Is, like, a really, you know, like, that's a really interesting way to, like, both give you the kind of, like, yeah, you know, like, we come to care about these people and like them and dislike them. And it's like, oh, Michelle showed up, you know. <laughs> and, like, you know, and I personally, at the end of this chapter. He skids to, <laughs> to a halt in his fast-moving <laughs> rover. It's, like, such a cool, he's like a Trans Am. It's like, oh, man, Magnum P.I. is here to save the day. Michelle P.I. Uh, uh, at the end of this chapter, like, I feel excited because they're going to go see Hiroko. Yeah. I have missed. Um, <sighs> uh, Love Hiroko. But, you know, so we both have that, and we also have the way in which, like, well, they all, together, they're, like, yeah. the main character. Yeah. Like, not, like, as individuals. And that's why we can move around from one to the other. Um, like, we don't have to have them live, right? You know, like, um, there's a kind of, like, you know, for a reader, you know, just like, you know, if you're a science fiction reader, you like reading, like, you know, s books that come in series, right? <laughs> yeah. And, like, the idea of a person who would live for a thousand years, a character who lives right. for a thousand years, Ooh, is going to be a lot of books in that series. <laughs> Yay! I get to spend uh, a lot of time with which this Which is person. awesome. Uh, just reshelving some of my <laughs> books made me notice uh, there are some science fiction authors who I write extensively long series that are filling up like entire shelves That's of my book. Crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, I can't even anyway, write one thing. Anyway. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, um, we should, but anyway, you said we should be better. Yeah. Anyway, I just think that's like, I think that's a cool part of these books, and we can probably wrap it up by saying, and then the chapter ends with like the next generation. Oh yeah, right with Which, some uh, that... with some millennial saying, "Yeah, you guys really fucked this up." He says, uh, "Yeah, the young driver, let's get out of here." He said brusquely, almost shoving them through the outer locked doors. He go, he said to them scornfully, "Next time you have a revolution, you'd better try some other way." <laughs> like you so dumb good. old people, you know. 
I did want to like, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe we can just wrap it up. I was going to say something about, I mean, the technology again on display here is really interesting and the, these like light aircraft. Yeah. But then also oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about was the, the way that um, information is mediated to them um, via the earth. Right. Right. right? Um, so whereas where Mars doesn't have its own sort of television stations or whatever in that John Boone chapter, we did have him watching Mangalavid right, right. Uh, television, which is basically like public access slash YouTube or yeah, something like yeah. that. Like YouTube in the golden age where before it was just Saturday Night Live <laughs> clips. Um, but, uh, but the way that um, Kim Stanley Robinson does have these amazing through like the the world that he's envisioned is so complete in that way because he has these through lines of you know we had janet blylevin as a member of the first 100 right right as a reporter the t- on the right. way out that then sort of you know said screw this i'm not doing my reporter job i'm one of you now um and then we have this continuity of how messages get get transmitted throughout this chapter mars is on the for the most part on the opposite side of the sun as earth so they can't get earth transmissions um, and Earth can't get transmissions from them. They can't really um, follow what's going on on Mars, even though what's going on on Earth is way more proximate and urgent because there's these massive wars going right, on. Right, right. Um, so there's that kind of level of imagining the media of of that future, which is, um, you know, uh, whatever, similar and different to what, what we have today. They have the wristwatches that have that they can have video chats on, right, which right. I, I've heard we have today. Right. <laughs> I can't afford one. Um, uh, well, there was another thing about... Anyway, um, what was it? I'll cut this part out. That's, yeah, that's When fine. I'm mumbling and trying to figure I think out it's what a, I was going to say. I think the audience loves this part. Okay. Well, <laughs> so the next episode uh, is um, the last the last part chapter, of last part. Red Mars, Shikata Ganai, which we remember as meaning we have no choice, right? There is no other choice, something like that. Something like that. There is no alternative. There is no alternative. It's I where would... neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Thatcher appears, the ghost of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, and it, again, it takes us into these kind of like – just thinking about that is another place to think about how like the book is really interested in like what happens through intention versus what happens by accident what you know like what is actually just like uh completely random but Mm -hmm. really really matters Mm -hmm. what is like well planned and turns out not to matter at all like is this an and chapter or is it is it all mixed up i'm looking it, it seems Dominantly Anne, or are they I multiple thought, I narrators? Kind of, I thought it was kind of all of them. Omniscient? It um, looks like it's sort of running between several different characters. Uh, Saxon, Anne, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Anne, Nadia, Maya. So it looks like uh, it should be pretty the gang, interesting. The gang's all here. It should be pretty interesting, <laughs> Hillary. We've never read these books before. Uh, I'm really uh, excited, yes, to find, to... Uh, to uh, run into Hiroko again, yeah, and uh, learn Very more exciting. about Coyote, which I don't think we learn more. That and much more and about who him. are the kids? Who is the new generation? The kids. We've These only seen them like driving cars, Pepsi drinking kids. <laughs> the taste of a, the choice of a new generation. 
Um, okay, well, um, let's try to record that episode this week. Yeah, we'll try to do that. Um, and then uh, that's it. Okay. All right. All I right. think we did a good job. Oh, yeah. Follow us on Twitter. Email us. Uh, rate us on iTunes. Oh, yeah. Um, rate and review. Rate and review us on iTunes. If we you have, have nice things to say. Another lovely review. A, a lovely review that was online that I don't know who wrote it. You think it's a friend of yours. I actually am not sure who wrote it. Somebody wrote a very lovely review. Uh, two people have written very lovely reviews. Um, and so you should be one of those people to write a <laughs> lovely review on iTunes. We're trying. Oh, we also, I put uh, this uh, a link to this on the Kim Stanley Robinson Facebook fan page or whatever it is. Cool. So awesome. a big shout out to all the uh, Kim Stanley Robinson Facebook fan people who have liked that link and uh, uh, started listening to us. Yeah. If I was on Facebook... I would like that link. Wow. Great. I would that, be part of the Kim Stanley Robinson fan community. An endorsement from Hillary. <laughs> that's right. uh, okay. Well, that's it then. We'll see you next time. Bye. All right. Bye. Say